everybody this is wrong real episode 519th podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard and today returning after far too long an absence we have the great Leanne Kubich who I actually finally met in the flesh back in February at Marcus Penn's wedding we got properly destroyed and we we're smoking cigars with Bill Scurry and you know Kevin Marr and just a, it, it, a fine time was had by all and at that time we were talking about how much fun it would be to tackle a Stars Born, like any of the Stars Born. So today we're coming at you hard with the 1976 A Stars Born. But Leanne, welcome back to Wrong Reel. Hey James, nice to see you. Uh, you know, t- too bad we can't like leave our little uh, you know quadrants of the world anymore. But uh, it was cool to see you six months ago at a wedding. Yeah, last wedding of all time, I guess. Um, Absolutely. Basically. So no you know. more weddings unless people <laughs> want to do it on Skype. Well, I loved our table and Marcus's wedding. It was just this circle of giant film fanatics, like Chris Funderburg and John Cribbs, and so on and so forth. And nobody at our table hadn't been on wrong reel at least once or twice <laughs> actually no, your husband was there as well like so he, yes. he he was the one uh, non-wrong reel uh contributor but then we had a great wrong reel picture with like scott thorough and marcus and everybody so yeah that was just a uh that was actually the last time i went out like in public hard because it was only like two weeks later when they really started shutting down the whole universe yeah i think uh my last last time out was probably like march i don't know 12th or something like that at a club that then burned down right wow. before lockdown yeah so it was even worse it was like we were like oh the club, club burned out oh my gosh now there's even lockdown so it was even a crazier time over here we were like what's happening oh my gosh so but yeah in the meantime i've become a notary public so that's 
hyper uh, boring, but it's a, it's a thing that people need. So, uh, I, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've uh, needed to find a notary public here in New York and you go to a place that claims to have one. I'm sorry, they're not going to be back for two more hours. I'm like, ah, fuck you. But yeah, anyway, in, in around Manhattan, they are needed, but oftentimes hard to find. Yeah. I have a stamp and, and a journal and everything. So nice. I yeah. like it. <laughs> Well, what so have you been doing when it comes to your, your movie watching and TV watching? How have you been handling the season of the virus when it comes to streaming options? Well, that's the whole thing. It's like I've been kind of like, okay, Perry Mason, I watched two episodes. I think it's amazing. I've, like I watched like, you know, you've done your reviews of it. But I'm holding off for the rest of it because it's a mystery. So it's a cliffhanger. And I don't want to like just, you know, watch it all because there's not going to be a lot of stuff out there in the future. So um I watched a, one that I watched that was really random. was How to Be a God in Central Florida. Okay, it's a TV show that was this. on Showtime. Uh, Kirsten Dunst is in it. Um, Alexander Skarsgård. I mean, yes. Yeah, so it's about a woman who uh, has a multi-level marketing uh, kingdom, sort of. Like she gets all the masses. Like it's a Mary Kay kind of thing. Uh, and she becomes like a multi-level marketing uh, person and gets all these schemes with all these people. It's amazing. It was so good. And it's under the radar, uh, very much so, because it's on Showtime. I had like a Showtime trial. Uh, so that's something I watched that was really good that not many people have seen. Uh, but other than that, yeah, I've been... Um, Did you dip your toes into the big, the two big TV phenomena, I think, during this whole period have been The Last Dance and Tiger King? It seems like both of those shows just took off where people who don't care about film and television are like, oh my God, like, are you watching The Last Dance? Oh my God, are you watching fucking Tiger King? And where, it, that's when you know a show's really crossed over is when people who are indifferent to film and television are totally obsessed with something. And so both of those, I think, uh, probably the two biggest pop culture phenomena on the, on, I can't even say the big or small screen because there's been no big screen period on the small screen during the last couple months. Well, I don't have Netflix right now, so I've kind of missed some of that stuff. But um, I did watch, like, HBO's had a really sad and but hard and good summer. Um, like, okay, they've had Perry Mason. They've had I'll Be Gone in the Dark, which is the adaptation of the book uh, by Michelle McNamara about the Golden State Killer, serial killer. Mm -hmm. um, that's an excellent documentary series. Um, and then um, there's a show called I May Destroy You on HBO right now. Uh, I really wouldn't recommend it to most people because it's um, it's about sexual assault and things like that. But it is probably one of the most interesting things that HBO has put out in a long time because the creator has total creative control, 100%. And it's from BBC originally, kind of like a, a BBC HBO production. So it's all British. And uh, it's really, really amazing. This well, is if a, you want to get caught up on Netflix, yeah. I might have to discreetly lend you my username and password because I think I've got room for a couple more people on the account. So if you want to get caught up on some Netflix uh, content, cool. I will gladly make you part of the Wrong Real Inner Circle on Netflix. Nice, nice. Because I, I know there's, there's going to be like some director or somebody's going to put out something that I have to see. You know, yeah. or maybe the second season of, um, well, I guess, well, it's hard to say what else is going to come out on a second season, things that were planned. You can't even... Yeah, say that you know they're finally coming back with Fargo season four. Like they'd shot eight episodes prior to everything getting shut down, and now they're revving back up and they're going to finish it. And they've actually got a release date, so I think we're starting to see some shows finish up that had their productions interrupted, like Falcon and Winter Soldier and things like that. But Netflix, they plot out everything so far in advance. They've had an uninterrupted flow of content during this entire period. So while other platforms are struggling desperately to post new stuff Netflix has just been business as usual like three or four new shows or movies every single week during this entire time so they're at nearly 200 million monthly subscribers now 
which is just awe-inspiring to me. Where Disney Plus has got like 60 million. I think uh, HBO Max has got like four or five or something pathetic. Then, of course, you got like CBS All Access and Peacock and all these kind of wannabes and so on and so forth. But yeah, Netflix, they've done just fine during this period. Yeah, because Disney Plus is interesting because it's like I have it, it's cool, but then after at a certain point you've sort of not seen everything but kind of yeah i mean i watched uh, the mandalorian and then i watched a, a couple episodes of uh, clone wars and i was like all right this is all fucking kid stuff like yeah. <laughs> i don't want to watch this stuff i want strong medicine give me tiger king god damn it like so right uh, yeah. e- even their new stuff they only put like they yeah, put out like a few things like they put out like cool beyonce video but that's like, one two hour thing like give me a little more content so the you know rumor i'm hearing is that disney plus is going to have a brand within the brand kind of like touchstone pictures where for the more adult oriented audience disney will still have an outlet but they won't taint the brand. They want Disney Plus to be family friendly, and it'll it'll always be family friendly. But they recognize that not everybody wants to watch, you know, princesses and talking animals and all that nonsense. And so there is a need for Disney to have the ability to compete with Netflix because Netflix has things like 365 Days, which is basically like this softcore S and M flick. Polish Italian co-production that took off like a rocket. It's one of the most watched movies of the year, and it's just gangsters and girls and people just getting it on. I mean, it was it was bananas. I was like, this is the most delightful form of filth I've seen. <laughs> you know, like, no redeeming values of any kind, but plenty of fun to watch. And so, if Disney wants to be able to compete with Netflix, they have to be able to compete with things like 365 Days. Yeah, yeah, because it's yeah, it's a little exactly, it's a little stale. It's a little like just like all right, I've seen all like I've watched all the shorts and everything, and the animation's cool. I mean, you're an animator, so I mean that's your stuff, and it's just like, but after a while, you're like, give me a little more. You oh, speaking know? of which, I, I don't know if I've mentioned on the podcast, but uh, Cheatin, which I've mentioned obviously many times in the past, which Adam and I worked on as executive producers, is heading to the Criterion Channel at the end of August. So that's huge. Yeah, that's uh, that's very exciting to have something that I, that I worked on associated with the Criterion brand. But while we're on the subject of crazy kind of adult-oriented content like 365 Days, let's start pivoting into the topic at hand because this is a story that's been around for a long time. Originally done by George Cukor in 1932 as What Price Hollywood. Then it was redone by William Wellman in 1937. Redone by George Cukor again in 1954 as A Star is Born. Today, obviously, we got the 1976. And then more recently, we had the 2018. And I think as long as people are watching stories on screens of any shape or size – this is a story that will continue to come back because it's this classic arc or this classic narrative. One star's on the way down, one star's on the way up. They meet in the middle, fall in love, and tragedy ensues. But uh, just as a way of kind of easing into it, what was your first exposure to any of the various forms of A Star is Born? Um, I guess it would probably be like, I mean, I just kind of know about it. Like it, you always hear about like the Judy Garland version, so... I guess that one or even this one, I'm not sure which I saw first. It's kind of hard to say Um, because they're just like, you know, they're, they're classic films. They're on TV a lot on, you know, classic cable, that sort of thing. So you just kind of run into them. Um, So I guess, and also like being as this was a hit album in the seventies and the mid seventies, you know, it was still like on mom's shelf, you know, that sort of thing when I was growing up. So um, I mean, this was a hit album. So yeah, I think, for a lot of people, this is one of the big soundtracks of the 1970s, and 
I had no appreciation for it as a hit until fairly recently, but I listened to, uh, due to your urging, the Karina Longworth episode that she did on You Must Remember This from back in 2014. I think that's episode 21. And Brady Sinellis also did a podcast where he talked about all the different versions. But because Brady Sinellis was born in the early 60s, he was a child when this one came out. And so he was well aware of its cultural impact in terms of the, the soundtrack and the movie being a hit and that sort of thing. And so they helped flesh out just what a big deal this was commercially. And they also helped open my eyes to some of the bananas and antics that went on behind the scenes. And we're going to do our best to get to all of it. But we're going to focus first on just A Star is Born as a movie. And I guess a large part of how people digest or deal with this movie is the degree to which they like Chris Christopherson and Barbara Streisand. Because this is a Barbara Streisand vehicle. She and her boyfriend or husband, John Peters. This was their brainchild. This was like their big passion project. It didn't originate with them. Joan Didion, who's one of Bredis and Elsa's favorite authors, she and her husband, whose name I am blanking on, had done a pass on this that Warner Brothers had acquired and loved and immediately started shopping for possible stars and directors. But once Barbara Streisand came on board, it became the Barbara Streisand John Peter show. And the result is a movie that was the number two highest grossing film of 1976 behind fucking Rocky. I mean, this is a movie that was a runaway success, but attacked by a lot of critics like Pauline Kael and attacked by a lot of critics like uh, Rex Reed, who called it uh, a star is stillborn and all these kind of snarky comments and things like that. But let's talk, start first just with how, what Leanne Kubitsch thinks. Are you a Barbara Streisand fan? And are you an A Star is Born fan? Once the best, but he was burning out. Until he met. I believe there's a best of both worlds. Esther Hoffman. Old and new. Recognize and change yourself unexpected. Who wanted more than success? As I long suspected. They believe that strange was I work she for wanted love. Love 
Barbara Streisand, Chris Christopherson. A star is born. I don't want to do this to you anymore. Well, then fight for me. Because if you keep walking, I hate you. With one more look at you, and I hate you forever. I want. I love you, Esther. Streisand, Chris Christopherson. Closely now. A star is born. Well, I mean, got to be a Barbara Streisand fan because she's like she's you know an American legend and all that good stuff. She's she's fantastic. I mean, I was I think my first um, Streisand um, like exposure really was Hello Dolly. Uh, I love that. It's such a great musical. She's so you know charming in it. That's like literally, she's just charm all over the place in that movie and it's such a fun musical it's so colorful and everything um so you know that and also she did like some my mom's a big like neil diamond fan so she did a song with neil diamond yeah you don't bring me flowers that was a hit uh when i was growing up or sometime around when i was a little kid and so you know i mean barbara streisand's just always been in like she's always been there you know she's never not been in like the popular zeitgeist i guess you could say well i had a similar thing in my household where she was always around but i didn't as a kid really understand why she was constantly being played like my i mean i would hear my stepdad go like he'd say princess let's invite some folks over and put on some barbara streisand i'm like no and i'd like go running screaming from the house like i just was i was into like led zeppelin i was into Anything that was kind of rock-oriented from the late 60s, early 70s, I wasn't necessarily into Barbara Streisand's style, and but I had so I had zero appreciation for the fact that she was this. I mean, she was a cultural phenomenon, pop culture phenomenon in the late 60s, early 70s, with movies like um, uh, Funny Girl, and obviously had the the horrible sequel, Funny Lady, and things like that. But I guess my first real exposure probably was the movie What's Up Doc, the Peter Bogdanovich movie, where she's not even really singing or anything, but she's just doing comedy, basically doing the Catherine Hepburn part from Bringing a Baby. And I thought she was funny in that. But this is obviously a movie that's designed to play to her strengths, where the goal is to get her in the studio to crank out six songs. And Warner Brothers kind of didn't care what the movie was, as long as they got six Barbara Streisand songs as part of the package. And honestly, like, I just, oh, man, I don't want the Streis fans or the Streis fans to come after me because I am a fan, too. But these are not the strongest songs. I'm How sorry. Dang. I know. <laughs> I, I feel terrible saying that. But I mean, I've been I've been I've been wanting to. I've been listening to the soundtrack. I've been trying my best and it's just not working for me. It doesn't click. I don't get it as as a usually. I mean, even if I don't like a musical at first, I mean, there's always like maybe, a you know, you know, a few minutes where you're like, oh, it's a musical. It's a little weird. And it takes a few minutes to get used to the songs. But you like you like them after a while. You just this isn't working. I don't know what it is about it. Evergreen's a really beautiful song. When the but the other ones. Yeah, exactly. Gorgeous song. But the other ones just don't seem to go no, anywhere. No, I'm right there with you. This is a weird thing where I find the movie fascinating 
not because of the objective standalone experience of watching the movie. I find it fascinating because I can't disentangle it from the behind the scenes. And once you learn about the behind the scenes, you see everything in a completely different light. And so I think this movie is uneven where you can feel it being pulled by in a lot of different directions. Writer-director Frank Pearson, you know, Oscar-winning writer of Dog Day Afternoon and also Cool Hand Luke, he's pulling it one way. Chris Christopherson's trying to figure out what movie he's even in or, or whose orders he should follow. Barbara Streisand's pulling it one way. And somewhere in the middle, this movie came in on time, on budget, and was a massive success. So it's like, well, maybe all the criticisms toward it all the bad behavior you've heard about on the set, it all kind of gets validated if the movie's a success. <laughs> and so it's like, was Barbara Streisand and John Peters, were they right all along to behave the way they did if the final product ends up becoming beloved? So I guess that's the real question. But let's, I, 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 keep, I keep breaking my own rule of trying to talk about the behind the scenes instead of the movie itself. What is the story of A Star is Born from 1976? Just set the stage. Okay, so uh, let's see. So it starts with, uh, well... Chris Christopherson plays a not he's not a down on his luck rock star, but he's his Burnout. star is falling. Yeah, he's yeah. kind of like he's he's obviously been incredibly successful at some point, probably in the late 60s, we're assuming, because it's the mid 70s. And he's so uh, he's he's so, so, so famous that he could just come to his concerts late and then like play one song and leave. And yeah. he's he's a, he's a, he's a mess and he's always running around and, and making that just he's he's kind of an asshole i mean that's the only way i can put it i mean it's not like oh he's just a he's a he's a sensitive guy and he does crazy things i mean he just he's a jerk he's a complete jerk so basically he one night like runs into this club uh after a show and he into this nightclub where this young woman is uh singing esther hoffman and she's just a little nightclub act and he totally trashes her act by being an idiot in the you know out in the audience he gets and in she's a fight like, with freddy krueger yeah, yes, exactly. Right. Robert Inglis sits down and, you know, so then they kind of start this relationship where he's like, I'm going to teach you the ropes, even though she's honestly way, way more responsible right off the bat than he is more professional, but he's going to teach her the ropes. And then she becomes this, you know, good, like she becomes a pop star and then he just spirals out of control. Uh, that's basically the, the story, but it doesn't really uh, work out that well, as in other adaptations, I would It's say. a weird thing where I like the switch from the world of movies to rock and roll. Like the first two movies that were made, or the first two and a half if you count What Price Hollywood, but originally it's about actors. And I think the switch to music is a stroke of genius. Like Joan Didion, people haven't read Joan Didion. There's like a collection of essays called The White Album, which is really good. And she also wrote this um, really withering essay about the dark side of hippie culture in the late six, 60s called Slouching Toward Bethlehem. And if you like detached, ironic, kind of cool writers, she's like at the top of the heap. And she had this idea of basically doing a rock and roll anthem about Carly Simon and James Taylor, who were not interested in being in the movie. But she and her husband, they were following around bands and they were really doing their research. And I think, I think it's what Frank Pearson said, the third draft that they did was just phenomenal. But it wasn't necessarily the kind of movie that Barbara Streisand wanted to be associated with or appear in. And she was kind of bored by rock and roll all, all around. But I think some of the most, most impressive ingredients in this movie are just having a concert with 50,000 people, like a proper rock venue with a giant crowd. And you're shooting scenes with Chris Christopherson like on a fucking motorcycle, driving into the crowd. Just the bigness of it, the scale of it is kind of jaw-dropping at times. 
yeah, that that's like the one part that's incredibly impressive. Like it goes over this, like the the goes over the stadium, and there's like a blimp shot. So you see the blimp shadow going over this gigantic stadium full of people. It's fabulous. Yeah, like the helicopter shots going in yeah. and out of the stadium, and just seeing this time capsule of rock culture at that time, where everybody walking on L.A. stoned out of their minds, drunk out, out of their ass, like, and like you said. Chris Christopherson indulging in the worst kind of rock star behavior possible, like flipping off the audience, cussing at them, forgetting the words to his songs because he's so fucking wasted. He is clearly on his last legs and really squeezing every last drop of whatever remaining celebrity he has. But even like at night, he just wants to drink. He gets in the car. He's like, yeah, let's boogie. Let's. He could not care less about his career as a musician at this point. And Gary Busey, who's kind of a producer slash road manager, is getting really frustrated. The bands, I mean, everybody in his life is frustrated, but... When he falls in love, suddenly he's no longer drinking himself to sleep every night. He's not taking pills to stay awake or go to bed at night. Like His life does start to turn around, but he also starts to neglect his, his group. And his group basically moves on without him while Esther continues to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, and it's weird too. Like there's certain elements that are strange, like the way that the crowd acts. Like right away, they're like they want blood. They're like boo, hiss. I mean, yes, he's late for the show and all that sort of thing. But it's like almost the entire time it seems like, and I guess it's kind of the illusion that the the fans want you know everything of a rock star. But they really amp it up like to a ridiculous extent. Where like the, when he gets in the fight with a Freddy Krueger, where he's like, hey man, I work and you don't work, and he gets in this ridiculous fight, and it's like. That generally wouldn't happen nowadays. If you met a rock star, you'd be like, oh, my God, you're like my person and yeah. be all excited. And you wouldn't be like, oh, I do a real job, buddy. Like you wouldn't say that. So it feels like a very 70s ethos. I yeah. don't know what it is. A lot of it feels a little cartoonish. And it's hard to know who deserves the credit for the good stuff and who deserves the blame for the bad stuff. Because obviously a successful movie has many parents and a failure is an orphan. So this movie is a hit. But famously, the writer-director Frank Pearson almost tried to divorce himself from the movie by publishing this scathing tell-all article like, uh, a couple weeks before the movie's release, drawing attention to all the negative behavior that he uh, was a part of and was embroiled in on the set. And so I don't know who deserves credit for what when it comes to some of the clunky dialogue or some of the clunky scenes or the, the scenes that feel melodramatic. I guess for me, the stuff that doesn't work is when it really tries to get sentimental and really tries to get romantic. I think when it comes to sexual and romantic tension between the leads, they clearly don't like each other all that much in real life, and it's affecting their ability to, to bond on screen. I think where the movie works is just showing what it's like to be an, an iconic rock and roller in the 70s because Chris Christopherson, massive star, and then fucking... Um, Barbara Streisand was a mega superstar, so that feels really authentic, and I feel like you're really getting a look at the music biz at that time. So that stuff I find absolutely riveting, and it makes you wonder, maybe there, maybe there's a better movie hiding inside of it, but perhaps it wouldn't have been as big a hit. Who knows? Maybe that better movie would have been a downer and depressing and not have been nearly as much of a crowd pleaser. I mean, to be, I mean, I think like, honestly, the better movie is the one that Bradley Cooper made. He made, he took this and made it into a good movie. I mean, honestly, like, like, like this is because there's a lot. I mean, this don't is tell Barbara Streisand like, because she owns the negative and final cut for this film. She has complete and total control over each and every single aspect of the movie and lorded it over Frank Pearson, almost like a, like a weapon. Like, all right, well, you might be the director, but my company owns the negative and we have final cut. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, there's a lot of like elements that are almost exactly the same and that 
Bradley Cooper did better. Like just even the beginning, like the like the beginning is like it starts off at like with the crowd and there's crowd noise and things like that, and that's where the titles go up. Um, and so the two films start the same way, but you know, the new Star is Born, the 2018 version, it's like, it's like a sound check and then the band starts and it's like just a regular concert. And it's like, oh, this is very exciting. You know, you feel like you're in the in the audience already, but this just doesn't feel like it. You're just like, why are these people even waiting for this band? They obviously hate this band. Yeah, that like, first oh. song, what's it called? Like, don't, what, what's, what's the name of that first song? They played a couple of times. And, and well, even that song, I kind of like, but there are a lot of songs in this that just made me want to like cover my ears, both by Christopherson as well as by Streisand. And so for me, most of the music of this is like nails on a chalkboard. But I guess the music in the 2018 in the first half is just much more to my taste. Like I don't like the music when... Um, Oh my God, I'm totally blanking on the mega Lady Gaga. The music, as Lady Gaga becomes more of a star and her music becomes more pop oriented, those songs did less for me. But early on, I think the music in that movie was absolutely fantastic. And so I just found myself being swept up emotionally. And so I think as a story, as an emotional journey, the 2018 was much more satisfying. But as like a freak show, like a, a, as you were watching a disaster unfolding in slow motion, I kind of find the 76 film irresistible because it's just such a complete and total misshapen Frankenstein's monster of different influences of things that work and don't. Yeah, and it's weird too, like the, like who wrote the, like the music. Like Christopherson didn't write any of the music. Why is that? There's no answer to this. I mean, if anybody's going to write a rock tune, you'd think it would be him, right? Yeah, like so, he's, a, he's okay. a rock star. <laughs> yeah, and, he, and, and, he, and he didn't. So they didn't have him do it, which makes no sense. And okay, Paul Williams co-wrote Evergreen, so that's why it's like perfect. Yeah, it's magic because Paul Williams is like he is, you know, magic of seventies music. But then it's like you know, it's just all these different people who have their hands in all these different songs. So Streisand did a lot of them, and then other people arranging the songs. So you're just like, okay, and everybody's really talented too. And it's the songs just didn't work. It was like they're trying to write a rock tune. But then, like Lady Gaga does it, the late, the later version, and she she basically wrote all of those tunes. Well, there's a some there's I can't remember there's a country western star who co-wrote one of the songs, like yes. the like the I can't remember. It's been two years since I've seen that since I've seen that movie. But I know that Bradley Cooper co-wrote that like that main kind of slow song Absolutely. with the, with that country western dude. Right. So they had like, you know, a few like collaborators and it all turned out really, really well. And this one, you'd think like, how did this not turn out as well as it should have? Like that, especially the end song. The end song is endless. That the very end, I was just like, yeah, when she's crying, wrap it up. Well, as she she was singing it, I was thinking, I was like, wait a second. Does this song even have a melody? Like where is it just her showing off her vocal range? Because no matter what you think of Barbara Streisand, lover, hater, indifferent, you have to acknowledge the power and the just awe-inspiring talent of her voice when it comes like all like personal appearance, creative decisions, professional conduct aside, her voice when she just unleashes its full power is unlike anything you've ever heard from that period. But that final song, as she's singing it, I was thinking like well, there's like no real melody to get hooked on. And then somehow it gets even worse when it goes up tempo. I was like, no, please just wrap it up. I don't need like a second version of the song now at a slightly faster speed. So once again, but when she was singing Evergreen with Chris Christopherson, 
it's pure magic when she's singing it. And but when he starts singing with her, because she insisted upon doing it live, she hates lip syncing. She didn't think she was very good at it. But it almost sounds like Chris Christopherson's in pain when he's trying to sing with her. Like he clearly needs maybe a little helping or massaging of his voice and post and that sort of thing. And it sounds like he's almost like in agony trying to hit the notes that they've they've given him to sing. Yeah, he's definitely not a he's a rock guy. He's not a ballad guy. That's why even like the entire movie where there I mean uh, Gary Busey the you know the 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 tour manager guy he's like you know your music kind of doesn't go together exactly it totally doesn't go together and it's when he switches up the acts at the the uh, with the Indian charitable uh concert he's like yeah he just switches up the acts like that's not what the audience came to see yeah. they came to see a rock and roll band and now you're giving them some pop singer yeah. i don't even pop it's not even pop music it's like cabaret tunes all right so what is the genre streisand because she's the first to admit she was not into rock and roll she thought she was a bit of a nerd grump in brooklyn she liked johnny mathis where her friends were listening to elvis johnny mathis was her style so is is she basically an extension of those crooners from the 50s but just doing it in a slightly more like late 60s early 70s context because i don't quite know what genre she fits into but she's definitely not part of the rock scene in any way shape or form yeah i mean i it there has to be like that cabaret sort of uh, broadway sort of i don't know because there's Lounge nobody singer. else yeah because there's not really any female artists who are like her parallel the only other person i could think of is bet midler who came a little after her yeah just a little bit so and she almost was like okay i'm doing what Streisand she was doing did. like sex and comedy and the crazy dancing and like bet right. midler's whole show was super raunchy whereas it seems like barbara streisand was always trying to be cute and adorable she was going for a very different vibe right and she did the the, the tv shows and things like that and then she did the musical you know the uh, the movies so i don't know and it's really weird cuz she floats above this it's like we are, we're always told like okay the late 60s or or you know it's all oh, the hippie time and it was so popular so so popular well maybe it wasn't i mean she was really kind of more popular than all that yeah. so i don't know what you would call that i mean i guess just pop Pop ballad years? Yeah, pop, pop I don't, I don't know. Because like when you think of the late 60s, early 70s, you're think, talking like you know Jimi Hendrix and you know Jim Morrison and you know Led Zeppelin and all, the, all these uh, rockers, or if you want to get a little more weird, like people like Frank Zappa or whatever the case might be. But while I wouldn't say Barbara Streisand's style is necessarily to my taste, Bredesen Nelson had this great term for describing her. He said, her voice is a glorious, unearthly instrument. And I think when she stops trying to take over the shape and direction of the story and she just performs and just kind of leans back and lets her voice do the talking for her. There are moments where like, oh my God, like I get it. I get why she was this transcendent star at the time. But then she'll do something where she's trying to be cute and kind of wink at the audience. And then like you see what type of persona she's trying to construct in the context of this film. And I don't necessarily like this... Um, is a, this fan, this, a, this fantasy of herself that she's trying to construct using this film as a vehicle. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. Like, I mean, like, like the Karina Longworth uh, episode where they talk about the, the history of this and how they were trying to make her hip and everything. And you can tell, I mean, her outfits are amazing. They're so... so I mean, closet, that, as they say in the credits. I know, which is hilarious. It's such a great credit. And But, I mean, they're beautiful clothing even before her character becomes famous or he's becoming famous you know and her clothes maybe shouldn't be as fancy as they are 
Um, cause they, they, maybe they don't look, but the, those clothes are expensive. Like she has this really fancy uh, leather coat at this point, one point, you know, that thing's like $4,000 back in the seventies. So I was like, hmm, where'd you get those clothes? Uh, you know, maybe, maybe make it a little more authentic, but they weren't going to grab those clothes out of her hands. Yeah. So. Well, as Karina Longworth points out in her brilliant podcast, which I had to listen to twice, I just found it fascinating, but she and producer John Peters basically had this idea that they thought right or wrong, that people, that the, their, their fans, that the crowd out there would want to know more about their lives, how they live together. And so they thought, well, with this movie, we can basically invite them into our lives with our cars, our clothes, our homes, our lifestyle, and so I don't know if Barbara Streisand would ever allow herself to be portrayed in kind of a poor kind of garage band up and comer light. She always wanted to be stylish. She always wanted to be Barbara Streisand. She just hadn't been fully discovered yet in the context of this. And that's another thing Karina Longworth points out is how, on one hand, you have to applaud Barbara Streisand for delivering a product that's exactly what she wanted it to be. And once again, the crowd loved it. It was, it was a hit. But she also had a, this like alarming lack of self-awareness when she was being not intolerable, but like she was unaware when she was being cringy or, or making people kind of like, Ugh, and she had this like horrible uh, uh, like way of acting where she didn't want to give or receive from the other performers. She had a very rigid idea, almost like a perfectionist with total control of what she wanted her performance to be. She got really mad at one point when she couldn't cry, and Chris Christopherson apologized. Said, "Look, I'm sorry. That's actually on me as your co-star. I should be giving you more emotion to work with to help you cry." And she got really irritated and mad, and complained to the director, like, "Like the ego on this guy. He thinks that what he does has an impact on what I do." And it's like, "Well, yeah, that's what that's what acting is. Like, it's the give and flow and exchange." And it just seems like she had this incredible domineering perfectionism that pervaded every aspect of this film. Oh yeah. I mean, you can tell like there's this, the, the scene when they're um, she's outside, he's like throwing mud at her. They're having like this mud fight thing. And it's very awkward. It's just all wooden and weird and it's supposed to be playful. Oh, how playful. And it's not playful. Like it's obvious, like, no, put the mud here and here to make it look like you're just like, this is just so bad. Yeah. They're pretending like, to have a good time. Those scenes, the love scenes, they do nothing for me in this. And I guess well, they do nothing for me as just enjoying as a story. They do everything in terms of watching how awkward it is seeing these two performers pretend to be in love when they're so clearly not. And apparently Chris Christopherson was drinking a quarter tequila and drinking two six-packs of beer and smoking weed incessantly every single fucking day because he hated making this movie. And he said that it basically cured him of the movie business working on working on this film well you can tell i mean i'm almost like it's like they're both wanting to look like they're in love and that's not working like he's trying and she's trying and it's just they're not connecting i mean not for nothing i mean she has more real chemistry with her backup singers than he than they do together like Absolutely. there's only like like there's only like a, and it's such a terrible name that the, the band her band's name the oreos like oh god oh god it's terrible so let's call the ladies who they are uh vanetta fields and clyde king they're both wonderful i mean they have amazing if you look at their credits it's like vanetta fields worked with pink floyd oh my god she's on wish you were here ah she's on that album uh she was she toured with the rolling stones for years worked with neil diamond stuff like that um clyde king worked with bob dylan a lot like a lot, a lot, a lot. So, and they've also both of them had their own like great solo careers. So they're 
really great. Um, it's unfortunate they don't have really any lines in the movie, uh, kind of just off kind of camera sort of chatter, but it's cute because they're all talking and they're like, oh, they're giggling and they, they like each other. They have good chemistry and the leads don't. And isn't that unfortunate? The only chemistry is between some lady friendships. Yeah. Yeah, I think some of the only real inter interesting exchanges in the movie are between Chris Christopherson and his manager played by Paul Mazursky, who, and apparently that character is one of the real details that's left over from the Joan Didion screenplay, where you actually get a taste for this kind of mean, tough, practical side of the movie industry, and he's basically calling attention to some of the realities that perhaps these stars are unable to face. And so there's some, some legitimate writing and acting going on there, but there's this great exchange that was overheard by journalists during the concert, which perfectly articulates what kind of chemistry that was uh, taking place between Streisand and Chris Christopherson, where they didn't realize they were mic'd and could be overheard by the journalist, but apparently she was berating him. She says, you're not doing what I tell you to. And he said, shit, I got the director telling me one thing and you tell me another. Who's the director? Get your shit together. And then apparently also told her to go fuck herself. John Peters, who thought he was like a street fighter, threatened to fight him and like all this nonsense. Like John Peters, maybe we should just pause for a second and let people know who John Peters is because he's one of the strangest creations of Hollywood in the history of the business. He was a middle school dropout who used to, who used to brag about the fact, I've never actually read a book, but I've got stories to share or something, or something to that effect. He got into the biz by grooming the pubes of porn stars on the set and things like that, but became a very famous hairdresser and then met Barbara Streisand when he was interviewing to be her hairdresser, berated her for being late, and then apparently said, uh, you've got a great ass. She said he made her feel like a real woman. They fell in love. But this is a notorious maniac who produced like the 1989 Batman, ended up running Columbia Pictures for a while, and Kevin Smith basically made a name for himself as a raconteur telling the story about trying to write a Superman script for John Peters. He's completely, totally stark raving mad. And everything going on behind the scenes is just fueled by the fact that John Peters has an idea of what he wants Barbara Streisand to become. And he wanted her to be hipper, wanted her to be cooler, wanted her to be a rocker. He was trying to get her away from things like Funny Lady, which he thought was a disastrous it was a sequel and it was old fashioned. So he was trying to drag her into something much more contemporary and kind of vibrant. Just a little piece I wrote. Keep hoping it'll be a sonata when it grows up. Make a hell of a song. I can't imagine that. It goes so hot, nobody could ever sing it. Play, play it again. Just like you've done it before. Real sweet. Okay. With them little leg rows or whatever. <laughs> Our patients. Okay. <laughs> I forgot my own song. Can we continue? Yeah. Um, 
Okay. Pick it up, pick it up. Right, 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 Okay, okay. Ready? Then you came. No, 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 no. I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry. You gotta get past that word or you'll never forgive me, man. Come on, it gets prettier. Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna get forgiven. Inside my life. All right, wait. Ready? Get set. Go. Okay. It's a okay. pretty song. Okay. Family Ready? hour. Here we go. Then you came inside my life. Yeah, I mean, and I can understand, like, why he would want her to not do, like, funny lady, but, I mean, it was almost like, I believe she was contractually obligated in some regard, and, I mean, what is she going to tell, like, Omar Sharif, oh, no, I'm not going to do this? Like, no, she's going to, even even if it's not as successful as the first film, it's honestly not, it's not that bad, you know? Did she get an Oscar for the first one? I believe she did. I think she won an Oscar for the first film. Yeah, and I mean, the second one is not the first one. No, no, no. But it's still, I mean, you still get to look at Omar Sharif, so how bad can that be? He's you know, a I mean, devil. Exactly. So, I mean, of course, and if, at the time it came out, it wasn't as big of a hit and all those things. It really was not not of the time. It, it, but, you know. I've I mean, never seen Funny Lady. I always hear about it in the context of how it's beloved by a lot of gay men, like in the movie um, In and Out with Kevin Klein, where he's coming out of the closet, he's always boasting and bragging about how much he loves Funny Lady. And finally, like, his wife, played by Joan Cusack, is like, fuck Funny Lady. Like she, like she hates watching Funny Lady with him. And he's like, oh, but this is a sequel. And, you know, he's, he's trying to defend it. So I don't know if I'll ever get around to seeing Funny Lady. I did see Funny Girl at a revival in L.A. But going back to the whole uh, John Peters thing, like, he and Barbara Streisand used to fight a lot with each other, and they would fight with Frank Pearson, and they would fight with Chris Christopherson. But apparently, like, there's one incident where John Peters was like tearing off Barbara Streisand's blouse as they were driving, and she was kicking him in the neck with her stiletto heels. Like they would get really physical with each other, and they would just bring that chaos into the set. And then if there was a disagreement with the director about what to do or what to shoot or what not to shoot. They would kind of team up on him, and John Peters would like say, "I'm not afraid of your Oscar," and like all this kind of nonsense. It just sounds like every day was a day where everybody wanted to quit. And Frank Pearson, I think, begged to be fired a few times, but they they wouldn't let him go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it, it it kind of makes you think like, okay, the the set must have been not you know really volatile and everything. But then you're thinking like, what the hell happened in the editing room? Like the editing is bizarre. Like okay, the montage scene where she is, uh, you know, she's taking off she's she's in concerts and and is there supposed to so okay great there's all these different montages of her at different uh, stages singing but the way they cut it is bizarre i mean okay you would generally have like the you know the different scenes cut and have one song sweeping over it or possibly have different songs but seg them into each other but this is just like 15 seconds of a song kind of segs into the next into the next, and it's all chopped up, and there's continuity problems in it too. According to Karina Longworth, Frank Pearson delivered his cut, his contractually obliged to deliver, stepped away from the movie. Then Barbara Streisand and her team took over the editing process for like the next six months, leading up to the very last minute, leading up to the release of the film. And once again, she ended up making $15 million off this movie, and the original writers, John Gregory Dunn and Joan Didion, had the biggest payday of their lives as a result. So while I might, on an artistic level, find the editing to be haphazard and chaotic, 
I don't, I don't know. It's, it's like a weird accidental hit. And so is, I guess the question for you is, is Barbara Streisand vindicated from being such a control freak when she delivers something that her fans like? I think she's vindicated later on because technically this isn't her film, right? Her name isn't under director or anything like that. So Although she wanted it. Film. When she, right. At one point she pitched to Polly Platt, why sure. don't we get rid of Frank Pearson and you and I can direct it together? And Polly Platt told her, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Like Polly Platt's a legend in the movie biz, legendary production designer, legendary producer. Was uh, I mean, she started like on Last Picture Show and like helped like discover Wes Anderson. I mean, Polly Platt, she's done a, a million things. But in this, she was the production designer. And I think she was one of the only sensible people <laughs> on the production. But I think like with this, like she doesn't vindicate herself because yeah, like the editing's all weird and stuff like that. Like it's all chop. It's not like it's. I wouldn't say okay. It's not choppy. It's not like you know herky jerky kind of thing. But it doesn't flow. But she vindicates herself later when she's a director. Yeah, when she's um, doing like Prince of Tides and things like that. Yeah, that's I'm, I'm a Did Prince she direct Tides. Prince of Tides? I can't remember. Yeah, absolutely. And like that's I mean I'm a Prince of Tides person. I know it's not like it's not a happy story. And um, I mean Nick Nolte's totally awesome in it. Um, it is a pretty dark story, and it's there's like weird, uh, you know, sort of things about psychi- psychiatry that are odd. Um, but and George Carlin's in it too, which is uh, different. Uh, he plays a very mincing gay man, a very stereotypical, but it was the 80s, so we're, she couldn't get a gay man to play that role. So, like, hey, George Carlin came in. So that's cool. So in that regard, I think she vindicates herself later on as a director. She is a good, solid director, and she does not get the due that she is owed as a director um, because she kind of got it together later on. She knew how to adapt a story because that's a, made, adapted from a book, and she does it well. You know, I mean, yeah, it's a little cheesy and it still has a little kind of her, um, you know, she's she's very uh, she's very big on Barbara. So there's still that in Prince of Tides. Well, apparently that's what she did when she was editing A Star is Born. They noticed after the fact that Chris Christopherson's part kept getting smaller and her, and her part kept getting bigger. But I find once again, I'm not blaming anybody. I'm not shaming anybody. I just find the entire like. The chaotic side of Hollywood with like egos and vanity run amok when you have really successful, powerful people all competing, I just find it fun. It's like professional wrestling. I, we get to sit back and just watch the carnage and, and see what happens. But Frank Pearson, when he was describing the experience of uh, making the movie, he talked about how it was the toughest thing he'd done since fighting in World War II. And Chris Christopherson said the only way you can compare it to anything is when he went through ranger school, which is a, an elite U.S. Army ranger program, which he did in 1963, where you sleep an average of three hours every 24 hours, and you're challenged to like the absolute like maximum of your ability for like three months. Like it's it blows my mind that two ex-military guys are describing the experience of working with Barbara Streisand like in the, in the same terms as like going to war. I mean, so I just find it all yeah. to be riveting. Yeah, because Chris Christopherson, he's like, he, I mean, you mentioned that he was like, you know, drinking a lot and all that stuff during production. But I mean, he's, it's like they were telling him, okay, do this. And he just kind of ran through the scene and did the thing, you know? And it was just like, okay, so you just threw uh, a, like a case of beer, like through a window. And now you're just all like, oh, hey, wait, wait for me. Like he's just, he's very, not robotic. Uh, you know, he's but, hitting his marks and mm-hmm. doing doing That's what it. he's asked, but there is zero emotional investment. He's like 
who do I have to fuck to get off of this movie? Which leads to one of the most interesting behind-the-scenes bits where this famous bathtub scene where John Peters apparently got really undone. John Peters was a very, and to this day, very fragile, insecure person, and he was fiercely protective and jealous, and he didn't want Chris Christopherson to actually be naked in the bathtub with his lady and demanded that he wear some sort of like chastity belt or some kind to keep, make sure that his penis would not accidentally touch the leg of his special lady yeah i mean i figured when you're i mean i don't know i've never been an actor and that sort of you know but i i figured there must be some sort of rules right i mean i would hope right so even back in the 70s you think okay there's got to be rules you're acting it's acting okay and then i mean i just looked at that scene and i was scared to death that they're going to set themselves on fire because it's like you have like this guy who is a total drunk and there's just like they're they're surrounded by candles that are like on schlitz cans and and stuff like that and you're like how the hell did they manage all this? Like, it just, it doesn't make, like, the set dressing doesn't even make sense. Like, yes, people can have candles around them in a bathtub in a romantic situation, but it's too done up for these rock star. It's just, like, a little too perfect. And you're like, no, nah, this isn't how it would yeah, be. Yeah, rock stars don't have enough um, energy or organization to make all that effort. One of the 
big creative decisions on this that come straight from John Peters, which differs from all the other versions. John Peters thought that uh, this basically, he thought the character was based on him and he wanted to, the character to resemble him as much as possible. And he thought suicide was weak. And John Peters, if anything, he was not weak. So he wanted to change the ending for that character and make it more ambiguous. Now, in every other version, when the guy realizes that his substance abuse and his antics are having a negative impact on his special lady's career, he does himself in as a gesture to preserve her career and kind of push her even further into, into the limelight. How do you react to John Peters making this, uh, making this switch to the story? It kind of looks like suicide anyway. I mean, the way that Christofferson plays it, this is probably like the, he's trying his best to be nuanced in this. And it's just like, it looks like suicide because he's like, he says goodbye to her in the morning. He's like, he keeps talking about, he's going to pick up this guy from the airport, which like, you kind of think he's not going to, I don't know. It just seems like a story. And then he's already drinking beer at like six in the morning or whatever it is. And he he starts to drive down the road real fast. And he's listening to his own eight track of his own song. And then he switches it to her songs. It's an eight track to hers. And then he's like, he shifts that thing into like, you know, fifth gear. He yeah, just, and it's John Peter's car that he's driving, but he kicks up to like 120 miles an hour. Yeah, on and, the they, and, they, they, road. And, they, and they literally like put the shot on the gear shift, showing him shifting up. So, um, and then he goes and then it just, you know, cuts and you see the car kind of go over the horizon, not like fly over the horizon, just, and then it's, the next is like the helicopter and it's like, oh, you know, it's, you hear the radio saying that there's just, you know, a fatality, a, a car accident. But I don't know if they're, you're showing the guy who's intentionally drinking and then he's like, why are you going to, why would you show him shifting the car? Uh, 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 like that to me shows that that's an intentional act. Yeah, right? It's more ambiguous than in the other. I mean, obviously Bradley Cooper, we see him hang himself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. James Mason in the 1954, we see him quite literally just walk into the ocean and drown himself. So those are like, you know, overt acts that we get to see in frame, whereas this, like you said, he drives over the horizon line and then it cuts to just the wreck and the helicopter. So there's a, a, a hint of ambiguity, but for me, we we recognize that he's starting to circle the drain early on. He has like two big moments where one time he basically shows up at the recording studio and he's kind of excited to get back to work, but he doesn't realize the world's moved on in his absence and his band's now preparing with other people now and he tries to kind of laugh it off but there's this great shot of his face where Gary Busey holds cocaine under his nose and there's all these dark shadows under his eyes and he just snorts up without any real pleasure or joy and he can just tell like oh my god like the world has moved on without me and they're doing they're doing just fine and then we have this other scene where a reporter comes to his home he finds her naked in the pool she basically says she'll do anything for an interview with Esther and so she decides to she tries to bone him then there Esther walks in on them and she admits that Chris Christopherson was unable to get it up so it's like his band's moved on he can't perform sexually so we're seeing some signs that physically and mentally he is in a state of decay right and then there's even the scene where he's trying to play his just write a song or something he keeps getting interrupted by the phone calls and taking the messages and stuff and he doesn't like that so it's like I don't know it just seems like it's obvious or just his incredible recklessness the entire time has finally like caught up with him i mean in the other films like yeah like james mason like walks in the ocean in the um what is it the 37 version uh uh, uh, yeah uh he he swims into the ocean i actually watched that recently and that is excellent that is such a great version of it awesome movie um he swims into the ocean like actively to but that could even be like you could even say to that one well he drowned 
you know, instead of it, that, that's never definite. So this one seems much more definite than that. So, um, yeah, I don't think that, that John Peter, you know, I think that it, it went the wrong way for him because it feels like suicide to me. I don't know. That's just what it looks like. Yeah. I guess it's one of those things where John Peters, he had, I mean, it's hard to argue. Once again, it's hard to argue with the results because he ended up burning Columbia alongside Peter Goober and he produced Batman from 1989 but there's so many stories about him as such a complete and total maniac that I find it very easy to laugh at him and poke fun at him and that sort of thing. And granted, now all that survives. Like he may have had some like some great qualities that I'm not aware of. But anytime filmmakers talk about him, they only talk about the negative. But do you think John Peters was responsible for the hairdo that Barbara Streisand is rocking out in this movie, which she insisted upon having it backlit in every single scene. And Barbara Streisand had a lot of different looks over the years. How would you rate her personal grooming in this particular film? Well, I would say like perms were very like of the moment at that time. So it wasn't that crazy to have like a big perm and stuff. It was huge. It was very, very, very popular. Um, and being like, you know, a, you know pop singer you know you can kind of go out there with your style um and she's already like she, she always they even they do the nose thing with her where they like touch her nose i mean she does have like you know not the like you know the traditional nose for a pop singer right so yeah, no, she's got a, a, a whopper of a chanel's on her without a yeah doubt. exactly so you know like so in that regard i mean she can kind of get away with that you know that look it was you know of the moment and um i think it works it's cute looks real cute on her um you know it's I mean, I think at one point they, oh God, there's like this terrible, like, like that. It's like, a, it's supposed to be a joke. And it's like, he's like the kinky headed one when she's doing the cat food commercial. And it's supposed to be like har har because she's standing with black women. And it's like, oh, that's a bad joke. Like that was just like a one was like, womp womp. That was a bad joke. But you tried, I guess. Uh, it's the yeah, 70s. It's funny because she <laughs> can be really funny when she has the right material. I mean, what's up, Doc? The Peter Bogdanovich film. She and Ryan O'Neill are delightful together. And while she's no Catherine Hepburn, Catherine Hepburn's probably one of the greatest female. I mean, she wasn't a comedian like Carol Lombard, but in terms of actors who are also capable and funny, Catherine Hepburn was absolutely first rate. And but what's up, Doc? As a remake of Bringing Up Baby, Barbara Streisand was totally game. And she was funny with the right material. I think perhaps she's not necessarily the best when she has too much control over too many different aspects of the production. And uh, she kept trying to get different credits. Like John Peters at one point, he wanted to be the director. And then at one point, uh, Barbara Streisand, she wanted uh, an editing credit as well as a uh, costume designer credit. Her agent, who was a, had a cooler head, talked her out of that. But rapidly within the industry, both John Peters and Barbara Streisand were developing these reputations as monsters who were basically trying to take credit and take control over everything they were involved in. But I, I, I keep going back to my ambivalence. If the movie is a hit and people like it, does that justify all this crazy behavior? I guess the question is how many bridges are you burning in the, in the process and who's going to want to work with you again, moving into the future? Cause obviously Chris Christopherson not only didn't want to work with her, he basically wanted to quit, quit the movie business entirely after making this movie. Yeah. I mean, it looks like he's, I mean, he's definitely done stuff since then, but he's not doing that sort of thing. And it's weird too. Cause he's like, I don't want to say cut off his music career. And a lot of musicians apparently quit of. due to Streisand demanding complete and total adamant control over every single aspect of the musical numbers. But once again, it's her ass on the line. Like it's her, it's, She thought her career was on the line and that if this movie was a failure, 
she and John Peters would never work again. So I, I get her wanting to seize the reins to make sure that the final product is what she wants it to be. Well, let's talk about the things like the most enduring parts of this in terms of its enduring legacy, because obviously it took 48 or 42 years to, for them to make it again. But clearly this is sort of the people still like. And obviously, given Bradley Cooper's approach to the 2018 he must have grown up on this movie. He's of the right age where he probably had parents who were obsessed with this and probably played it a lot. Otherwise, he never would have felt compelled to remake it as a rock and roll movie. He would have taken it back to basics with like the George Cukor and William Wellman when it's, where it's, where it's actors. So what do, you, what do you think it is about this movie that perhaps attracted Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper after the fact? Because I know that like at one point Clint Eastwood was going to do the direct the remake. Beyonce was attached to the remake. Like it's, it just, this movie won't go away. It just people, new generations keep rediscovering it. I mean, I guess they just thought they had a really good opportunity to, uh, you know, write some good songs and, you know, do it the right way. Uh, you know, make it like bring back to sort of like you feel like Judy Garland, James Mason, like you do feel that when you watch that that version, it's like, wow, you know, there's there's a lot there. So maybe they just wanted to in infuse some feeling in the story again. Hope you know that was the idea. And also, I mean, there's all these little there's all these little throwbacks in that moon. It's it's a lot like just the title card in the new one where she's singing uh, once, you know, uh, over the rainbow. It, like Lady Gaga singing that, it's like so she's almost singing it to like Judy Garland, like in the past, that kind of thing. Like there's all these wonderful little callbacks. Yeah, I think the, that 1954 version, I think, is my favorite movie that Judy Garland ever did. And you can see signs that she's starting to come off the rails. I know when they were shooting it, she her substance abuse, pill, pills and booze had already kind of gotten their hooks into her and she was very difficult to work with and her weight was fluctuating dramatically and she was un unsure about her acting. But as far as one of like the great, big, big budget, glamorous takedowns of Hollywood as a culture, it's probably the most beautiful, tragic romance that Hollywood ever did about itself. I mean, you could say things like Sunset Boulevard, but there's not really a tragic love story at the, at the heart of it. You've got one person obsessed with the other, but it's not really like a love story. A Star is Born is one of the great Hollywood love stories that is told about itself. And I think it's why the story will never go away. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if in 20 years, whoever is the new big cool thing is going to come along and they're going to they're gonna do it all over again. They'll probably do it as an entire season on fucking Netflix. Yeah, because that's the thing. The, the, the Lady Gaga, I mean, she wrote all the tunes basically and they're all really really well done she's i mean she's she's good at writing all types of types of music though she can write pop music she can write big band music she can write jazz she's kind of as a pianist she's kind of can do it all what do you so, think of her oscar performance of bradley cooper because my sister kept texting she's oh, like they're in love they're really in love it's called acting i mean that's the thing in the movie they look like they're in love yeah and it's called acting people and that's why it's so great because <laughs> Like you can, you can pinpoint the part in the movie when they like fall in love. Like it's really, really perfect. Like he's like, there's like a, the, the camera slows down and everything. It's really beautifully done and you feel it. They actually feel like they're in love in that movie. And I love it. It's, it's so well done. And I don't know, they just, they must've really, I mean, she's, she's obviously a very good actor and he is too. Uh, so, you know, there you go. They worked it. Um, but that means I don't know. It's such a great example of what it's like when an actor is playing a rock star versus an actual pop star playing a pop star. Because Bradley Cooper, I think, did a pretty damn good job when it came to performing and doing the rock star thing and singing. But then when Lady Gaga starts singing, you're like, 
oh, Jesus, this is a different thing. Like, it's one thing if you're Bradley Cooper and you're handsome and you're a good actor. It's another thing when you got one of these voices that comes, al- comes along once every 20, 30 years and you can quite literally blow the roof off of a stadium. And that's the kind of voice that Lady Gaga has. And so uh, on one hand, I was like, either Bradley Cooper's got to step it up or maybe Lady Gaga should tap the brakes. But <laughs> they're, they're singing on two completely different levels. Yeah, and he, I mean, he just, he got the role right. He got the fact that he's supposed to be this guy who's, you know, you he's talented but he knows he's you know fallen apart but is also he is interested in her he's genuinely interested in her he's he's like no he likes her he wants he he doesn't even need to teach her anything he just brings her on the road she already knows everything you know so it's it's like there's no really like student teacher application in this one which is the the newest version which i think is kind of cool because they're just equal if anything, positions he just invites her into being a celebrity but there's yep. no real like collaboration there's like one scene when they're composing at the piano together which i just didn't buy whereas the contrast is some of my favorite scenes of the 2018 film when Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga, when we see them just on the road together, like in t-shirts, just performing together. And you can tell he's having fun for the first time in a long time. And she's becoming a star then and there. And I think those scenes really play well. And I guess another way to compare all these movies is the moment where the guy humiliates his lover as she's receiving an award. And what's I think the most bruising version of it is in the 1954 when like James Mason comes out and he's like, I need a job, I need a job. And, like, and he's basically throwing himself on the mercy of the Hollywood community. Or when he, inter- he drunkenly stumbles onto the stage with her when she's performing and she tries to make it into an act and she's trying to cover for him. I mean, it, those scenes just make your face turn like 10 shades of red. And there you have, of course, you have the scene where Bradley Cooper pees his pants in the 2018. I think probably the weakest version of that scene is in the 1976 when Chris Christopherson stumbles into the Grammys and he starts requesting a reward for, an award for the worst performance of the year. And I don't know, for me, the scene just, it doesn't quite play. Well, that, that's the thing, yeah. The 19, like the, the 37 version is really upsetting. It's very, very upsetting because like she gets smacked in the face. Like the dude yeah, like smacked, right, bam, right in the And you're like, oh my God, she just got, hit i mean it's really tough to see so that one's really really upsetting the yeah the the 54 version i mean mason just breaks your heart because he's so pathetic and he shouldn't be pathetic because he's james mason and also damn he it starts the movie pathetic i mean he's already on his last leg at the beginning of the movie when right. he goes into that place and he's kind of shyly talking to the maitre d like do i know anyone here and like you know like uh, and he's basically looking for easy prey and easy mark to see who he can take home with him that night but he's at the he's at the very end of his journey when the movie first starts right and so that's one like you know that one's really pathetic so it works and then of course the bradley cooper one is just like Oh, like that one, I think it's like just straight out alcoholism, people with blackouts, perfect, right? Because he's not, he's not trying to, actually, he's trying to be happy. He's really happy about the situation, but he's so messed up that like he pisses himself. I mean, that's like, so, so that's, so it, so it's the most realistic of how like an alcoholic would act yeah, like a earlier person today, who has alcoholism. I was totally you know. sober and I almost shit myself. I was walking out of the subway and I rolled my ankle to the oh, side no. and it was so painful and I almost collapsed. And I, I was in so much pain for a split second that I almost lost control over all my bodily functions. And then I started cracking up. I'm outside, like some of the crowd, like how amazing would it have been if I had not only like broken my ankle in public, but shit my pants then and there, like having to explain to like the ambulance, like what is going on when they kind of come to save me. Luckily I regained control and salvaged my dignity. 
yeah, yeah. So that that's the thing. Like that that's why, like, yeah, exactly. Like it's the natural, like un- you know, so that's like the, the most recent version feels the most it's like devastating but realistic. But this one, it's like he comes in, everybody's kind of like, Oh, look at this guy, but they're like, whatever. And then they go in the bathroom and just sort of have a reasonable fight about it. Like, really? Like he just it, it doesn't even seem like there's a big brawl and then you guys go in the bathroom and just have like a, a, a well, sort explain of... to me this. How come people were snidely saying that Bradley Cooper deserved an Oscar for pretending to be in love with uh, Lady Gaga? I know very little about Lady Gaga apart from just being familiar with some of her music. Does she have a reputation as like a monster that would where she would deserve that kind of... Because I, I, I get it with Barbara Streisand knowing what I know about the behind the scenes on this film... But I didn't know if Lady Gaga had a similar reputation. There's, I mean, if there's a reputation, she's hiding it really well. Um, I mean, she seems. I mean, seems like everybody who works with her, not that if anybody's saying, nobody's saying anything bad. She's also she put out that um, there's like a concert documentary. There's like, well, there's a concert film she did, and then there's a concert. It's like called a uh, Lady Gaga Five Foot Three or something. It's on Netflix, and it's about how she has like you know, it's very tough on her. Um, doing all the dancing and the the big productions all the time. And so she had like a cracked hip for a little while. Gotcha. I mean, and she's she was a like, total physical specimen. I right, can't imagine so, how much training she's gone through. But I mean, she's just a giant. I mean, she's like, like she's been carved out of bronze in terms of like her muscles. Right. So, they, so that documentary shows her behind the scenes and she's like in a lot of pain a lot of times. And it's really like tough for her to just like get out there and dance around in the big crazy shoes she wears and things like that. So it seems like, I mean, Unless she's a terrible monster and isn't saying it, she seems like an okay person. She has a charitable organization. She has had for a very, very long time since almost the beginning of her big career. So I don't know. Um, she seems like an okay person, and I think people are just being weird about just being, just being haters. Well, Brett well, in his also- podcast was laughing about. It. He's like, he's like, forget Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. He said it's Chris Christopherson who deserves an Oscar for pretending. And this was his exact line for pretending to be in love with Streisand's imperious fantasy of herself. The two of them are simply in different movies, and it does seem like at times like Chris Christopherson and, and Barbara Streisand are acting in two different movies. And I think maybe Chris Christopherson's acting in the Joan Didion movie, whereas Barbara Streisand's creating just the Barbara Streisand show. But it definitely seems like they're out of sync in terms of the tone of the film. And maybe Chris Christopherson yearned for a, a more gritty film, perhaps a film that wouldn't have necessarily been a commercial success. But it seems feels like with Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper, they're on the same page about what movie they're making. Yeah, I mean, it's just like even like there's the montage scene where they're supposed to be building their house. Oh, uh, don't when Barbara Streisand's jumping around uh, like in a Superman shirt. I was like, all right, I might have to that. press pause for a bit and just take a break. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're supposed to be. It's like the timeline doesn't make any sense. They get married, they drive out to their ranch, and they're like, oh, you know, this is where our new home is going to be. Fantastic. Then there's this ridiculous montage with her and there's these awesome little outfits, but they're supposed to be building a house like in it out of adobe so they have like a cement mixer out and these big like industrial machines they should not be riding and you're terrified because you're like oh my god why are they on these big machines and then magically the house is built and it's really 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 cool looking and then they're opening wedding gifts in their bed and you're thinking wait shouldn't this be like six months later like if the house has just been built it, it should have taken a few months, right? I mean, it's just like these people couldn't have built this house and now they're getting wedding gifts and it's ridiculous. Like the, the whole thing, like it's just, 
the the plotting is poorly done. Yeah, that just that feels like it's got the fingerprints of John Peters and Barbara Streisand all over it, and it's just like we want to create the fantasy or sell the fantasy of what our lives are like together. And the reality is. They didn't stick together that much longer. I think they worked on a few more movies together. They stayed together for a couple of years before they inevitably went busto and went in their separate directions. And they both enjoyed enormous levels of success without each other. But man, that's such a strange relationship. But John Peters never outlived or outgrew that reputation as Barbara Streisand's hairdresser. I remember I was reading the book. Um, it's called Indecent Exposure, all about with the very public firing of Peter Goober and John Peters when they briefly ran Columbia, then they got thrown out. And I, m- I remember mentioning it to my stepdad. He's like, oh, yeah, Barbara Streisand's hairdresser. Like, he hadn't even thought about John Peters in decades, but he still knew him in that fashion. So maybe that also helped undermine his confidence, which gave him such a huge chip on his shoulder. That's amazing. Wow. That's No, that's just crazy, the fact that they were married and everything, and that's yeah. what he's known well, if as. If anybody ever wants to get the true John Peters madness experience, just go on YouTube and just look up Superman, Kevin Smith, John Peters, and for like 45 minutes, he tells this story about what it was like going to John Peters' mansion, and because John Peters can't read, and so Kevin Smith had to read his script to him, and John Peters would lay on his couch and would hold his fingers up in the air in the shape of a movie screen and act like he was seeing the scenes <laughs> in between his fingers, but he didn't know like what like the Man of Steel meant, or he didn't know about Superman's cape, or who Clark Kent was, and like all these things, and he kept asking Kevin Smith all these stupid questions, and then he would say these things like, you know what, this is going to be a hit movie. You know why? Because we're both from the street, and Kevin Smith's like, well, I'm from the suburbs, so whatever, and anyway, it's it's divine, and it's just, it's it's some great YouTube watching that I strongly recommend. No, it's great. But- well, what else can we dig into about this flick? Because mm-hmm. we've got the uh, the musical numbers, but I think the only song really worth hunting down is Evergreen. The rest of the songs I can pretty much throw out, and uh, I recognize that this was a, throughout the summer that it came out, well into the fall, one of the biggest albums of the year, so there's probably a lot of people out there who love and adore it, but because I was born, I was born the year this came out, I just don't have any sentimental affection for the music, so I, I just look at it in a slightly different light. So as a movie, all crazy behind-the-scenes shenanigans aside, does this work as a movie for you? I think it's unsuccessful, and that's an unfortunate uh, thing because it could. I mean, it's like it's really weird. Like, I, this is one of those movies that like TCM will put on. Like, not like TSM, TCM doesn't really replay any movies, but you know, maybe every three months it might be on that kind of thing. And I've like had it on in the background. It's kind of like oh, in the background, it's kind of fun to look at because you know. Barbara Strand, Streisand looks all interesting in all her outfits and things like that. But when you watch it, watch it, you're just fr- like, I'm frustrated because I'm like, I'm str- I'm like, I'm really like holding on to try to find some like, oh, no, I'm just being critical. And I'm like, no, man, I'm being under critical. I'm giving it a lot of passes when it shouldn't get passes and things. And I don't know why it's like I can understand it being a hit. So I'm just thinking like just. You know, logistics. Everybody goes 1976 into the yeah, theater. You got a rated hit. That's just crazy. It's an R rated right. movie, number two movie of 1976. Right. So, like, everybody goes in to see the movie once. Everybody's, a, every, anybody who's a Streisand fan has to go see it. Right. So, that's like your ticket sales are going to go up. That's the same reason why probably initially the most recent version of A Star is Born was popular. I only went to see, to see Lady Gaga. I was kind of like freaked out because I was like, I'm a fan. Oh, but that was trailer like, was golden. I remember Rob Cotto when that first trailer came out said, best picture, I'm predicting it. I mean, he, he could tell that they had struck a pro- proper tone, so I checked out the trailer. 
And that's one of the best trailers of the last couple of years where you get that transition from the, the easy going song into the big Lady Gaga song where she blows the roof off. And I was getting chills and goosebumps up and down my arm. I was like, wow, this is... Whoever cut this knows what the fuck they're doing. Yeah, see, I wasn't convinced because I had figured, well, okay, cool. Like, you know, it might be have a good trailer. But I was thinking, like, this is a woman who had made an album. She had done an album called Art Pop. And she worked with, like... Um, Blanking out right now. Damn it. So, so sorry. Um, but she worked with like very like large artists and, and things like that with it. And it was a flop. It was just a flop. Uh, Jeff Koons. I'm sorry. So he actually made like a Lady Gaga sculpture. Wow. Like Jeff Koons. There is one. Yeah, he's the guy like, that he sold the or he his art that the, that metal bunny recently sold for 90 million dollars. Yes. Exactly. So Jeff Koons like later literally did the art for her art pop. It's all this stuff. And it flopped. I mean, as as an I can't Gaga stand album. Jeff Koons. I know he's like the most bankable, commercially successful artist alive today. I think his stuff is pure, unadulterated trash. But um, I don't move in those circles, so my opinion does not matter when it comes to his work. But I know, obviously, right. when it comes, but it, the numbers that his artwork generates are just jaw dropping. Right. So when that album came out, right. So there was this big thing where, right, like, you know, he did the artwork, he made a sculpture for it. And I mean, even the tunes on it were pretty decent, but it just, it flopped in relation to what a pop album of her person of her caliber would have made. Right. So I was what's thinking, her, what's her like, best album in your opinion? I mean, honestly, the most recent one that just came out this summer, Chromatica is like, it's just a house album. It's house music. It's like, if you're really into like 19, like, 80s or early 90s house music that's what this sounds like it's so brilliantly done um so yeah i think chromatic is probably her strongest album which is crazy because it's like her most recent one but i didn't i was like really worried that it was going to be just a movie attached with a, and i know she had done some acting previous to that on american horror story um but i was just like i don't know well, we've seen i don't pop know stars try to make movies before and it ends disastrously like mm -hmm. what was it, britney spears and she did crossroads and things like right. and, and you're like ooh, like yeah i guess like purple rains got its defenders but it's a it's purple tough. rains great yeah it's but, tough but when under pop a stars cherry moon is try to not. make the switch i guess like elvis obviously made like 36 movies speaking of which elvis is actually one of the people that barbara streisand tried to woo into being the chris christopherson role because he was still selling out stadiums i think this movie ended up coming out a couple months before elvis's death so he was quite literally at the end of end of the road but it would have been a quite a different movie with elvis in there and I don't know if it would have been a better movie or a worse movie, but it would have been a different movie. But I guess most important question of all, if you were to rank the four different versions of A Star is Born, top to bottom, what do you got for me? Okay, so I think the top version would be uh, Bradley Cooper's uh, because it's just the vision. It's the totality of it um, and also translating it to like, you know, uh, music. It just works. Everything about it works. And even the album is good. Um, even his songs, just his songs alone are good. So that one, I would say that one. Then 1937, uh, definitely, because it's funny. Interesting. All right. You're going with the William well, Dar Wellman. Wild Bill Wellman. He's, he's, a, well, he's a good director from that period. I'm a big fan Dorothy of him. Parker wrote, I think, some of the screenplay or, or some of the script because it's, it's funny. It's really, really funny. 1937. And yeah, you got Dorothy Parker and Alan Campbell who are the main writers and Dorothy Parker is known for the 1954 stars born. I guess they kept getting the credits, but she also worked on saboteur, the Hitchcock flick. And uh, yeah, so big time writer. Yeah. So I would go with that one just because, I mean, it's like, it's, it's 
touching. Um, you know, he the character, he's so charming. Even though he's totally like he's drinking all the time, but he's making these little charming jokes about it. It's great. It's so, so entertaining. Then the Judy Garland version, which is fabulous. Even though there's that weird scene where there's no film and they have to put like, well, they lost you know it. Yeah, the, the, the film, yes. if you watch it now, in an effort to restore the film, the scenes that are missing, they just show a still and you hear the audio. Sadly, the full version of A Star is Born does, uh, from 1954 doesn't exist. It just They did such a rotten job in like the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s of preserving our cultural heritage. And you would think a movie as giant as the 1954 Stars Born would have been better preserved as this big, giant, widescreen, technicolor marvel, but there are missing scenes to this day. Right, so yeah, that one I put because um, James Mason's awesome. Uh, I mean, I just, the other one just get kind of is more entertaining. I just find like the Judy Garland one, it gets a little long at a certain point. It's, it's long and sad, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, like it just, there's just, I, I love the scene where she has her musical scene and she's acting out all these silly things for him in, her, in the living room. That's hilarious, but it gets a little repetitive at a certain point. You're like, wrap it up, you yeah, know? It's, it's not a movie that I throw in like at two in the morning when I've had a few drinks. Oh. Like, hey, let's watch a Stars Born. Like, yeah. Right, and then I guess, yeah, coming in last would be this Barbara's version, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the 1976 is the worst of the four movies, but the most interesting to talk about because of the behind the scenes where I love film history. And the older I get, the more I like film history as opposed to the actual movies themselves. Like you get to a certain point where you kind of, you've seen it all, but history remains really vibrant and exciting. Or maybe it's just because both Brady Sinnells and Karina Longworth did such a brilliant job of fleshing out the drama. Both of them have a very similar style with their podcast where they're telling a story. The way Karina Longworth does like an entire like narrative, that's how Brady Sinnells starts his show. He does a narrative or an essay or a rant, and then he interviews somebody in the second half. And they're just both really good writers. They're, they're amazing film historians. And when it comes to film podcasts, you really can't beat either of their shows. That For me, they're the, they're the gold standard. And so I think because they both did such a good job of fleshing out the behind-the-scenes drama, I just I latched onto that story in ways that the movie never will for me. Yeah, and it's an unfortunate thing because it could be a good story. I mean, with Chris Christopherson, he could have been utilized in such an extent that would have been really awesome i mean he's a real rock star and unfortunately like bradley cooper when he's playing the rock star he's playing him almost but he's doing it the right way like there's this one part where bradley cooper like he he like he snorts a pill and then like he like smashes it with his boot a bunch of pills they snorts it and then he just puts the pills in his drink and just drinks it and it's like so dirtbag kind of just like i don't even care but anymore wait, I mean, and for anybody awesome. who likes a party we've all seen people who get into yes. pills and get a certain point taking a fistful of pills just doesn't cut it you got to grind that shit up and fucking snort it you want that immediate impact and i've never really been a pill guy i've always been a weed guy a booze guy and in college i messed around with like hallucinogenics and things like that i thank my lucky stars that i never got hooked on pills because i've seen just like it's the the uppers and the downers that will kill you every time and the history is filled with those examples and Bradley Cooper he just went for it and yeah for people who grind up pills and snort them and then like lick off the remains it's it's a dirty grimy nasty form of abuse but highly addictive and that also that version I mean it goes it has to be uh, 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 Sam Waters uh, his the brother of Sam Elliott plays his 
Sam Elliott, yeah, he's amazing in that film. I mean, that's another reason that really Dave everybody Chappelle's should... really good. In it. There are a ton of good people in it. Yeah, so that's another reason. I mean, just that alone, his tiny, tiny little part, which he was robbed of an Oscar for, as far as I'm concerned, he should have gotten that Best Supporting Actor because it's like this tiny part and it's so poignant. It's yeah. really Dave poignant. Chappelle, and he's playing Dave want, Chappelle. I wouldn't want him to stop doing stand-up because right now I think he's the best in the game when it comes to stand-up, but... When you see someone like Chris Rock, who's shifting into more dramatic stuff, like he wrote and is starring in the latest Saw movie, which has got postponed due to the season of the virus, and he's also starring in season four of Fargo. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Like, I will miss Chris Rock as a stand-up because if you want to be good at stand-up, you got to do it year-round. Like, you have it's like being like a boxer. You you got to fucking train and you got to box. Same with stand-up comedy. You got to do it every goddamn night. You can't be off doing movies. So Dave Chappelle. I w- it would hurt my feelings if he were to leave stand-up to be an actor, but if he ever does make that switch, he will be good at it. Yeah, because I mean, in that, it almost feels like he just is dropped into the movie and like, hey, I'm Dave Chappelle. I'm not going to call myself that because he's still smoking his cigarette. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like he just dropped in to do some scenes, and it's like too much fun. You're just like, I don't even care. And You're his just here voice, and it's great. because he smokes so much, his voice keeps changing. Mean, you look, listen to Dave Chappelle yeah. in like the late 90s, he's like, hey, and he has like a really like high-pitched voice. And now... It's like an old like blues singer. <laughs> He's like ninety years old. Like his voice just keeps getting deeper and scratchier from all those cigarettes. And I I love the way his voice is maturing as he enters like you know middle age. I guess. Yeah. So I mean, and I I mean, he just did that. He didn't even. I wouldn't even call it a stand up special. It's just a. S. I mean, he did that that the social distanced. Yeah. Uh, yeah. First, it, it was more outdoor. of like a, a like a primal scream as opposed to stand up. And he mm-hmm. admitted like. I don't have like an hour special prepared. I'm just going to talk and get some things out of my system. But last year, I guess in August on Netflix, he had a special release that I had actually seen here in New York a couple weeks prior and no one can fuck with him. And I saw last year, I saw Joey Diaz. I saw Jerry Seinfeld. I I love going to see stand-up comedy. And And also when I saw Dave Chappelle, John Stewart came out and introduced him and John Stewart did his opening bit. I was like, all right, this is John Stewart, massive celebrity. He can't fucking touch Dave Chappelle. He can't even can't even keep up with him. It, it was embarrassing just how much better Dave Chappelle was than John Stewart. Oh wow, very nice. No, it's good to see that he's still keeping at it. Then because you know. And then when the show was over, he came out and John Stewart came out with them. They improved for an hour, answering any questions from the audience. People could just huh? walk into the mic and ask any question they wanted. And Dave Chappelle, in spite of the fact that he had no idea what was coming at him, still managed to be hilarious, just making up responses off the cuff. And that's what really blew my mind. I was like, oh my God, like his prepared stuff is good. But even if somebody, and people kept asking really annoying, self-righteous, like highfalutin questions, and Dave Chappelle, and now one more, Dave, John Stewart whispering in his mic, you realize this is a comedy show. <laughs> but Dave Chappelle was just still being brilliant. And so, yeah, it was, it was so much fun. But that's, that's another topic for uh, another day. Yeah, uh, you know, half-baked. It's good. Hey, absolutely. Go. absolutely. Dave, Chappelle, Dave Chappelle's vision that was not fully realized yep. in that film. <laughs> absolutely. Well, any final words about this franchise? It's not even a franchise, but this ongoing series of remakes, of remakes, of remakes, of remakes. Any final thoughts on the, the legacy of Barbara Streisand and her music? And just, yeah, c- closing thoughts from the great Leanne Kubitsch. Well, I mean, I'd say, like, Barbara Streisand's fantastic. Absolutely, like, enjoy her musical work, um, her own her own films like Yentl and uh, Prince of Tides. It's weird that she did like three installations of the Fokker movies. That's kind of weird that that's like one of her biggest franchises. Uh, but, you know, I mean, she's she did a Netflix special like uh, Barbara Streisand, the, the 
the music, the magic, the memories, and it's literally spelled like memories, like like it, like a contraction. It's so cute, and she's very charming in that, and a wonderful just singer. She tells the, so- the stories or her songs in a little cabaret setting, and it's wonderful. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'd like you know, enjoy her. Um, definitely just listen to her pop albums. That's the thing. She's like she's a pop singer of a different era um, that we just don't have anymore. We're never going to have a pop singer like this. Let's ever again. say you're hanging out with an, an eight year old, nine year old child, and you're trying to sell them on the idea of Barbara Streisand. And they're totally unfamiliar with her as a celebrity, totally unfamiliar with her as a movie star, etc. What is the first song you play for them to try to make the case for Barbara Streisand? Ooh. Well, what's, the, I mean, I would have to just show them like, maybe like hello Dolly, maybe like the big, scene where she's like on the staircase with the big headdress and the whole thing just be like look at this lady with the pretty hair and she's all these guys dancing around her and it's all exciting I mean like something like that I think which is that's what draw drew me in because I was like oh wow what is this exciting spectacle you know that kind of thing I that, I definitely start with that hello dolly's just overall a, it's 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 entertaining it's enjoyable for all people so I think it would be enjoyable to a little kid, you know? Well, here's an interesting historical factoid from uh, IMDb. Barbara Streisand is the only person ever to receive all of the following. Oscar, Tony, Emmy, Grammy, Golden Globe, Cable Ace, National Endowment for the Arts, and Peabody Awards, as well as the American Film Institute's Lifetime Achievement Award honor and the Film Society of Lincoln Center Chaplin Award. So... Whoa. People can criticize her, make fun of her, say they don't like her, whatever the case may be. But she's carved her own path, her own way. And while I might not necessarily call myself a Barbara Streisand fan, I respect the fact that she had a very clear vision for what kind of star she wanted to be, what kind of material she wanted to be associated with. And she steamrolled over anybody who stood in her way. And for that, she gets a massive uh, nod of respect from, uh, from Wrong Real. Absolutely. And Chris Christopherson, well, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, for him, I watched, you, watched. You tried. Yeah, watch Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid if you want to see Chris Christopherson. <laughs> watch Lone Star. Watch uh, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. They, he's got other movies where you get to see the uh, the full Chris Christopherson show. Or watch Fat City where his song, Help Me Make It Through the Night, opens up the movie. Or watch him on The Muppet Show when he sings, Help Me Make It Through the Night with Miss Piggy. It is delightful. He wrote Bobby McGee. He wrote Bobby McGee. I mean, wow, that's 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 huge. That's a big one. Yeah, so. That's one of the good ones. Well, cool, Lynn, it's always a delight and a a hoot and a half getting to record with you and uh, come back anytime for for any topic. And hopefully uh, we'll have an an excuse sometime in the near future where we can all hang out again in the flesh because Marcus's wedding was just so much goddamn fun. And anytime you get like 10 or 12 movie maniacs and a bunch of booze and cigars all in the same place, it just, uh, the conversations were, were flowing that night and it was just so much damn fun it was it was awesome night it was beautiful so well it was awesome talking to you dude absolutely where can people find you online if they want to talk more um on twitter uh lm uh lyanna mary k um just kind of out there doing that uh yeah that's about it i guess um i'm 
think I'm going to be on film 89 in the future nice. uh, coming up. Very uh, cool. Some, Our Welsh sometime, brothers from across the pond. Yeah, yeah, sometime in the next, I think, two months. So that should be a very fun one. So look nice. out for that Excellent. one. I look forward to checking it out. Well, we hope you all enjoyed yeah. this episode. But check out the movie for yourself. Decide for yourself. And uh, you, you won't be bored. <laughs> you might be bewildered, but you won't be bored. But as always, we greatly appreciate your support. Please remember to leave a review, rating, all that good stuff on iTunes. And if you want some more short-form content in the near future, hunt down my YouTube channel, Geeking with James Hancock. But we can't thank you enough for listening. We greatly appreciate it. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. Ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.